The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. As we continue our series through this gospel, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. And there we read, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We see that the introduction of this gospel moves us from uh, eternity and into uh, time and space. Because we recall John began by revealing to us that Jesus is eternal, that he is the word who was with God and who was and is God. The very first verses of John's Gospel, John proclaimed that Jesus was with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit in the beginning before creation, that all things were made through Christ and without him was not anything made that was made. What a wonderful picture of eternity past, of the glory of Christ in Uh, the beginning. And now here in verse 6, John, the author of this gospel, he moves from eternity, from that wonderful glorious picture, and into time and space, into history, by describing now the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who began his ministry before Jesus, and who uh, we read prepared the way for Jesus by witnessing of him. That's what we read here in verses 6 through 8 about John's witness. And after we learn about John's witness in our first point, I'd like us to think about how we are witnesses to Jesus in this world. In this gospel, in John's gospel, the uh, baptism, the Baptist or the baptizer here is referred to merely as John. And this is in contrast to the other gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke who refer to him as John the Baptist. Now, the difference here is probably because in this gospel, John uh, the Apostle is never mentioned by name, and so there is no need to distinguish him from John the Baptist. This John being spoken of here in verses 6 through 8 prepared the way for Jesus' ministry by administering this baptism of repentance that we'll learn about. And you know, to understand the significance of this man, of John the Baptist, we actually need to go back to the Old Testament because John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Covenant. The prophets in the Old Covenant spoke of the coming day of the Lord. It was the day in which God would uh, show his glory. It was the day in which God would pour out his blessing upon his people. It was the day that they spoke of when the Messiah would finally come. And 
many of the prophets, Isaiah, who was quoted in uh, Matthew chapter 3, of our, uh, which was our second reading, speak about this glorious day, the day that God would come and live among his people. But before that day arrived, uh, we read in the Bible that a prophet like Elijah would come first and prepare God's people for the Messiah's arrival. And this prophet was going to be a herald of the coming Messiah. He was going to proclaim, to uh, announce that God's day of redemption had finally arrived, that the Messiah had arrived, and, and the prophet was to be a prophet like Elijah. We read this very specific um, word from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament. We read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The last few words of the Old Testament. And then after that, for 400 years, the uh, time between the Testaments, the time between Malachi and John the, baptism, uh, John the Baptist, for 400 years, uh, no prophet spoke in Israel. There's actually silence uh, during that intertestamental period as far as special revelation is concerned. In fact, in many of our Bibles, uh, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament is merely a blank page. If we look at that blank page, we know that uh, so much happened uh, during those 400 years of silence. During those 400 years, Israel was awaiting the coming of Elijah, one like Elijah who would um, foreshadow and be the forerunner of Christ. And so when John the Baptist then began his ministry, it was a significant moment in redemptive history. When John began his ministry, many in Israel uh, quickly realized that he was the promised herald of the Messiah. He was this one whom Malachi spoke about. Many in Israel realized that John was the prophet like Elijah that they had been anticipating. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 6, what <clears throat> John looked like. Now John was uh, clothed with camel's hair and wore a belt around his waist and ate locusts and uh, wild honey. You might ask, why does Mark and, and even Matthew in our second reading this morning, why do they take the time to describe what John wore? Why did they take the time to describe the fact that John looked like a hipster back then, right? Uh, well, it's very significant, these, these details about John's uh, attire, because this uh, connects him very directly with Elijah from the Old Covenant. It shows John's continuity, actually, with Elijah. There's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 1 where we read that uh, Samaria's king, he took a bad fall, and he was on his deathbed. And Elijah uh, received a message from the Lord to the king. Uh, God told Elijah that the king was going to die. And while Elijah was on the road, he met with some messengers from the king. And Elijah told these messengers the bad news. The king was going to die. And so these messengers went back to the king to give him the bad news. And after the king heard this revelation, he asked, and who told you this? 
Well, we read their response in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. They answered him, uh, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And we read that the king said, it is Elijah, just by the way that he was described. And so do you see there's a similarity in appearance. John looked just like Elijah to show the continuity and the connection between the two. And not only did John the Baptist look like Elijah, but he even preached like Elijah. We read about Elijah's ministry in the Old Covenant. He was uh, a prophet focused mostly upon preaching to Israel and calling Israel to repentance. We need to keep in mind as we think about what, John's, uh, what Elijah's ministry was about, we need to keep in mind the fact that Israel was a God's nation. Right? They were God's people. But we know that uh, despite their privileges and blessings from God, they often went astray. They often fell into the sin of idolatry, of uh, faithlessness, and of immorality. And Elijah, during his years as a prophet in Israel, he uh, worked to bring Israel back to faith. He called Israel to repentance, right, to turn from their sins and, and to turn back to God. He preached against Israel's sin by calling them to renew the covenant that they had made with God. And when we meet John here at the beginning of, of John's gospel, we see that John was preaching to Israel just like Elijah had preached. John was calling Israel uh, to repentance. One example is in uh, Matthew chapter 3, as we read, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, and he appeared proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were coming to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. And when we read about John's baptism here, we need to understand, loved ones, that it was uh, different a uh, different baptism than the one that was instituted by Jesus in the upper room. Uh, John's baptism was not the same as the baptism that uh, we administer here in the sacraments, part of the new covenant. Right? But John's baptism instead was, was rooted in what is known as a proselyte uh, baptism. Now, a proselyte is a person who has converted from one religion to another, and uh, proselyte baptism was instituted during that 400-year period during the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was instituted for uh, Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. Gentiles who were not of Abraham's bloodline, but who nonetheless wanted to become Jews. And so if a Roman or a Greek wanted to convert to Judaism... There were three things that they needed to do. They first needed to embrace and profess the faith of Israel, the faith that's outlined in the Old Testament. If they were male, they had to be circumcised. This was a sign and seal of, of Israel's faith. And, and thirdly, converts to Judaism had to undergo a proselyte baptism, this baptism that represented the uh, washing away of of sin, of cleansing, of purification. So it was rooted in, in the washing ceremonies of the Old Testament when we read in books like Leviticus about the various washings that the Israelites had to undergo because they were considered unclean uh, because of their sin. And so it's significant that 
uh, when a person wanted to convert to, to Judaism, they had to undergo this uh, baptism, this cleansing ritual. Now, the scandal with John's baptism was the fact that he didn't just call Gentiles to repentance and to show their repentance through this baptism that he was administering, but he was calling Israel to undergo this same baptism. He was pointing out Israel's sinfulness. He was pointing out the fact that they too needed to repent of sin and to be washed clean because John was going before Jesus. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was sent by God to announce that Christ, the light of the world, had come into the world. He was a witness to the fact that Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. And so when we read in the Gospel of John that John the baptism was John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus, we think about that imagery of what is a witness? You can think about a courtroom. And many of us have seen shows or written or read books about uh, courtroom scenes. And we know that a witness has a legal uh, aspect to, to what they do. They are, for example, when they are in a, in a courtroom during a trial, a witness is asked to testify to what he or she has actually seen or heard. They are to tell the truth. Right? They're not to make things up as they go along, but they are specifically to speak about what they know. John was a witness to Jesus, testifying about Jesus coming into the world. Well, in the same way, loved ones, we are to be witnesses. We are to tell others, like John did, that Jesus has come into the world. See, John was a herald of Christ's first advent, of, of his first coming. And friends, we are heralds of Christ's second advent, of his return. And we, like John, are called to point people to Christ, to bear witness to him. As Isaiah and Malachi and many of the old covenant prophets spoke of Christ, uh, Christ's first coming, so uh, scripture prophesies that Christ will come again in glory. He will return. We are sure of this, loved ones, that he will come to judge the living and the dead, and so we, like John, are to herald his second coming. And how do we do this? We do this as fathers and mothers in our homes, when we sit with our children and we teach them about the truths of our faith, we teach them about their sinfulness and about the Savior's loving kindness. Uh, we witness to Jesus by talking to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family members, and we try to steer conversations in the spiritual direction rather than in the mundane, ordinary direction. We witness to Christ by our deeds as we learned last week about the fact that we are salt and light in this world, pointing others to the salvation that is found in Christ alone. Just as John was a witness, we each are witnesses. And as we, as we live our lives in this way, loved ones, by the power of, of the Holy Spirit, what we need to understand is that not everyone will respond to Jesus in the same way. 
we see in our text this morning that we can expect two outcomes. We can expect that some will reject the light. Some will reject Christ. We read in verses 9 through 11 of our passage this morning, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now the uh, surprising truth we read here is that the light was rejected when he came into the world. When he came into the very world that he created. See, Jesus is, is the true light, says John, who gives light to everyone. As we will uh, see shortly, uh, John will speak of the true light as, as being given only to those who believe. Indeed, it is only because a light is given to those whom God chooses to receive eternal life that they are able to uh, believe the gospel. But John speaks of Jesus here as giving light to everyone in the sense that Jesus is the source of all truth, whether people acknowledge that truth or not. We read, for example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, about how God displays his glory in, in creation, in all of nature. Paul writes there, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. See, because uh, Jesus is the light, he is the only source of truth, there is no one who lacks sufficient light to see the truth. What John is pointing out here is that people choose to reject light and to live and darkness. Many people in Jesus' day rejected him. They rejected the light of Christ. We know that during his earthly ministry, some people, when they heard Jesus preach, weren't angry with him, weren't upset by what he had to say. They were merely uh, disinterested. They simply stopped following him. Others actively hated Christ and publicly opposed him. And we read in the Gospels that they even plotted to kill him. And all of this, whether it was um, the fact that they were openly rejecting him or simply turning away and being disinterested toward him, all of this is due to a hardness of heart. And loved ones, as we uh, consider the hard hearts of, of those who rejected Jesus in the Gospels, of people like the uh, Jewish religious leaders and even of uh, Judas Iscariot, you know, it's easy for us to say something like, I can't believe that uh, they would treat the Lord of glory in that way. I would never, if I had uh, encountered Jesus, I would never have done such a thing or responded in such a negative way toward Christ. And loved ones, before we say that, we need to understand that it is only by the grace of God that we have hearts that love Christ and that do not reject him or that are not interested in him. See, before the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the Bible says that we were all like the Jewish religious leaders. We were all like 
Judas Iscariot. We all rejected him. We were resistant to Christ and to his word. We were his enemies. We loved our sin more than we loved the Savior. And so it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that he has overcome the hardness of our hearts by the power of his Spirit. And he has regenerated us and given us new hearts. And all of this is not of our doing, not a result of our efforts. It is all of grace. We read this very clearly in Titus chapter 3, where we read, For we ourselves were once foolish, uh, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There's a very well-known story of uh, John Bradford. He was an English preacher in the 1500s, and he is the one who is credited with the saying, there but for the grace of God go I. And the account is that he said this as he was watching prisoners, uh, criminals, being led to their public executions. And John Bradford, rather than sitting there and uh, wagging his finger at the criminals, judging the prisoners as they walked by, he rightly said, there but for the grace of God go I. John Bradford was readily acknowledging that if it was not for God's grace in my life, I would be in line with those criminals. I would also be led to punishment and toward death. And were it not for the grace of God, loved ones, you and I would also be counted among those who oppose Christ and his gospel. See, the, the grace of God is seen in the fact that though some reject the light, some will receive the light. That God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, gives his people eyes to see. He, he gives us ears to hear. He moves us from darkness to the light, the light of Christ. And that's the good news that we read in verses 12 through 13. John writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The grace of God is seen, loved ones, in the fact that not all people reject the light, that some will embrace Christ. And when they do that, they do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that when that moment happens, we become children of God. That by this new birth, this regeneration it takes place, it happens, we read, not by blood, it doesn't happen because you and I are born into a Christian family. It didn't happen for those in Jesus' day simply because they were born of Israel. It's not by blood, and it's not by the will of the flesh nor the will of man. It's not by our own willpower that regeneration takes place. But very clearly, the Bible teaches that it is all an act of God, wherein 
God sovereignly works to draw us to himself, to move us from darkness and into his marvelous light. See, loved ones, not everyone can call God their father. Because the Bible says that we are born enemies of God because of our sin. We are born as aliens and strangers uh, to God. Outside of Christ, we read in Scripture that we're separated from God because of our sin. We are uh, described as objects of wrath by birth. And so only Christians, therefore, can truly call God Father because only Christians have received the grace of adoption into uh, God's family. And that is actually the key doctrine that the Apostle John describes here in our text this morning, that in Christ we have been adopted into God's family. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of, of adoption. It's a picture of somebody who is alone, who is without help, without connection, who is brought into a family, not by merit, but because of mercy. And this doctrine of adoption is part of the order of salvation. It's, it's a link in the chain of what happens when by grace, we trust in Christ as our Savior. The Bible says that when we trust in Christ, we are justified, that our sin is credited to Christ and his perfect obedience is credited to us. This is another courtroom scene, God's court of law. But it's a wonderful picture because it's a picture that describes us being declared not guilty in that courtroom. And it's beautiful as we reflect upon this doctrine of justification, isn't it? To, to know that we are not guilty in the eyes of God. And not only not guilty, but we have been also given Christ's righteousness. That we are in Christ as we stand before the Father. What a wonderful joy. But there is an even greater joy, loved ones, to be found in what follows justification. That in being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're also then adopted into God's family. God becomes our Father. This is what the Apostle Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. That when the fullness of time had come, uh, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In salvation, God becomes our father. Christ becomes our brother. This is why the theologian named uh, J.I. Packer well-known Reformed theologian. He writes in his book, Knowing God, um, he writes that while justification is uh, the immediate consequence of Jesus' death on the cross for his people, he says it's not the highest blessing of the gospel in the order of salvation. Packer writes, adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Packer rightly calls that the fact that justification is a, a legal term, but adoption is a familial term. It reveals who we are, the status that we have before God, not merely as 
forgiven, but as children. And parents, just like when our children come and ask us for good things and ask us for what they need, and we lovingly respond and we lovingly help because we have that relationship is based on unconditional love toward them. God looks at us in Christ with a deeper love than you and I could ever imagine. The Heidelberg Catechism, so Reformed Catechism written during the 1500s, it asks the question, why has Christ, in reflecting upon the Lord's Prayer, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Have you ever thought about the Lord's Prayer and the way that it begins, Our Father who art in heaven? Why is that significant that the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples to begin the prayer that way? The answer the catechism gives is, this is in order to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith then will our parents refuse us the things of this life? Loved ones, the application is so clear. The application is that we have access to God, to the eternal creator of the universe, that he is our father and Christ is our brother. Let us therefore never hesitate to approach, never hesitate to ask, but to always approach in faith and love and assurance that we will be heard and that our prayers will be answered. Tim Keller writes, and it's a quote I've, I've noted before, Tim Keller is a former PCA pastor. He writes, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. We have that kind of access. Let us then, loved ones, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you continue to draw sinners to yourself by your Spirit. We thank you that you drew us to yourself when we were as yet unable to do so. We thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We pray for uh, those here this morning who are uh, prodigals, who are in your household but are not children of the Father. Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, we pray. We ask also for our family members and friends who need the call of your Spirit so they might turn and seek after you. Bring them in, we pray, from the far country of sin and into your fold, into the joy, Lord, that is your household. We ask that you would allow them to receive the adoption as sons and daughters so they might, with us, call you Father and call Christ brother. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.